In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Our readings today present what I'll call, for now, a puzzle. Three of them feature prominently the theme of judgment. In Ezekiel, the Lord God judges his sheep, binding up the injured and strengthening the weak, but destroying the fat and strong. The first seven verses of our psalm are doubtless super familiar to many of us who repeat the venite during daily morning prayer, but the last four verses warn us sharply not to harden our hearts like the Israelites who tested God and whom God swore should never enter his rest. And Jesus himself warns in our gospel that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he, Christ the King, will say to the goats at his left hand, depart from me, you who are accursed into eternal punishment, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. While all three passages feature God as our shepherd, they also display prominently his kingship, and hence are fitting for today, Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday of ordinary time before we enter Advent. And part of Christ's kingly office, the readings remind us, is separating the righteous from the wicked, the just from the unjust, the faithful from the faithless. But here's the puzzle. Our fourth reading from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians also prominently displays God as king when Christ hands over the kingdom to the Father after the Father has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet so that God may be all in all. These verses suggest that when all things are put in subjection under Christ, evil will be no more. Christ will destroy every ruler, authority, and power, terms Paul usually employs for spiritual or worldly forces of injustice, greed, and oppression. Lastly, Paul says here, Christ will destroy death itself. How then, if all of this is the case, can it be that the previously mentioned goats will be consigned to eternal fiery punishment with the devil and his angels? If you too find this question puzzling, then know that you and I are in good company. It puzzled early Christian theologians like Origen and Gregory of Nyssa too, who wrote extensively on Paul's claim that God will be all in all. Here's Gregory. The divine nature is the source of all virtue. Hence, those who are released from evil will be in the divine nature, so that, as the apostle says, God may be all in all. He who becomes all will also be in all. In this, the apostle seems to me to teach the complete annihilation of evil. If God will be in everything that exists, evil obviously will not be among the things which exist. <coughs> For if one should suppose that evil existed, how would it remain true that God is in all? If evil is excluded, not all things are included. 
but he who will be in all will not be in what does not exist. Thus Gregory. There are, of course, different ways that you could understand Gregory and Paul on the annihilation of evil. You might take it to mean that the evildoers, along with all of their evil works, are just wiped out altogether. Maybe that's what Jesus's words about eternal fire refer to in a metaphorical sort of way. That's not Gregory's understanding, though. He thinks, rather, that the fire is the same one Paul speaks of earlier in the same letter to the Corinthians as testing the quality of each person's worth in a purifying sort of way. On this reading, what Christ is destroying is evil, not the evildoers, who are instead purified and brought under Christ's holy rule along with everything else. This is a universalist reading as opposed to annihilationism. One of its prominent contemporary exponents, David Bentley Hart, supports it by pointing out that the word Jesus uses for the eternal punishment of the goats is colossus, which in Greek typically means correction, as opposed to the word timoria, which typically means retribution. As for eternal, the word ionion can mean that, but sometimes just distinguishes things happening in the age to come as opposed to current times. So might the warning to the goats and the fat, strong sheep be simply that they'll face harsh correction in the age to come? St. Augustine knew that some of his fellow Christians thought so, but he himself felt that he couldn't join them. He writes, I'm aware that I now have to engage in a debate with those compassionate Christians who refuse to believe that the punishment of hell will be everlasting. One reason Augustine gives for rejecting their view is that he thinks if wicked people after death could be chastised and purified, then the blessed enjoying eternal life would have to worry that the alignment of their wills might likewise be altered and that they'd fall from grace. They'd ever be insecure, hardly at rest in the way Augustine famously longs for when he prays, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. I don't know how persuasive this reasoning of Augustine's is really, but it's certainly true that very many capable Christian theologians have agreed with him in upholding not just punishment in the age to come, but everlasting punishment. Among these capable theologians were the 14th century mystics Julian of Norwich and Hadowich of Brabant, both of whom record a series of visions they received from God. Julian's revelations center on God's love, and she's famous for expressing one of them beautifully as showing that all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. You'd think that having been shown this, Julian would reject everlasting punishment, but she doesn't. She steadfastly maintains what she takes to be the teaching of Holy Church 
that the devil and many seduced by him are everlastingly damned. Like me, she sees this as greatly perplexing. Given hell, she writes, I thought it impossible that all manner of things shall be well. And I received no other answer in showing from our Lord God, she continues, but this, what is impossible to you is not impossible to me. I shall keep my word in all things, and I shall make all things well. That's another beautiful expression of faith, and it might be good to quit puzzling about judgment and leave the matter there. This might be good, furthermore, for another reason, namely so as not to overlook what's surely the most pressing feature of the Ezekiel and Matthew passages, namely their stern words against those who grow fat and strong and fail to care for the weak and injured, the least of the king's brothers and sisters who are strangers in prison, naked, or unfed. Isn't the clear message here that failure to love our neighbor is failure to love God? It is, doubtless. As Augustine himself writes, whoever takes themselves to have understood the divine scriptures or any part of them in such a way that by that understanding, they don't build up the twinned love of God and neighbor, hasn't understood anything at all. That seems to me profoundly important. When a theologian as notoriously given to theological puzzling as Augustine tells you that understanding the scriptures boils down to love, it's worth attending. However, Without in any way downplaying trust in God or the love commands, I would note that Julian, for her part, does not leave the matter alone with the expression of faith I read a moment ago. She has questions and she keeps pressing for answers. She writes, and yet I still long and shall until my dying day through God's grace to understand, and God's grace does grant her understanding of a few points further. He teaches her that sin is befitting, for instance, which means not that it isn't vile, base, and awful, but that it's written into the fabric of the story of which God is the author and Christ's triumph over death is the central event. He taught me, she writes, that I should consider the glorious atonement. For this atonement is incomparably more glorious in saving mankind than Adam's sin ever was harmful. In that sense, she agrees, Adam's sin was a, a felix culpa, a, a happy fault. This is an important realization and theme for her. Still though, she goes on to say, God made me understand two aspects of this. One of them is our savior and our salvation. This aspect is blessed and clear and bright, light and beautiful and abundant. The second aspect is hidden 
and closed to us. That is to say, everything that is not necessary for our salvation, for it is our Lord's privy counsel, and it is proper to the royal lordship of God that his privy counsel be undisturbed. Or, as she says elsewhere, some mysteries are hidden from us because God wants them to be hidden. But some mysteries are hidden from us because of our blindness and ignorance, and God wants to make these more open to us so that we may know him and love him and cling to him. So two kinds of mysteries, but which are which? And which sort is the puzzle we've been talking about from the readings this morning? I have no conclusive answers but I'll end with two observations. First, Julian, for her part, feels encouraged to keep puzzling about sin, blame, mercy, and forgiveness, partly because, as she puts it, it seems to me that I need to know these things if I am to live here in order to recognize good and evil so that I may, through reason and through grace, distinguish them more clearly and love goodness and hate evil. Julian is not like the hard-hearted Israelites at Meribah testing God and putting him to the proof. She'll trust God whether she gets answers or not. Still, she seems to say, in order to love rightly, we need to press for understanding of these matters. Why might this be? Well, in one sense, Jesus' message in today's gospel is perfectly clear. Feed, clothe, welcome, visit. But our lectionary forces us to read well-trodden passages like this one in light of others, like today's from Ezekiel, in which it strikes me the real problem the prophet has with the fat strong sheep is not their girth and strength, but the fact that they've so devoured the pastures and so befouled the waters that the other sheep can't feed themselves. If that's right, how should it inform our understanding of Jesus's words about ministering to the hungry, naked, sick, strangers, and prisoners? I think we have to ask ourselves, given the juxtaposition of our text today. And so too, I think we must ask about what it means to love our neighbors under the rule of a shepherd king who will someday be all in all, yes, but who also swears in anger concerning the fat sheep and the goats, they shall not enter my rest. Second observation on the topic of rest. You might object to calling the sorts of questions, mysteries, or whatever that we should probe into puzzles. Puzzles are meant to be solved, whereas what we're talking about is an ongoing, never-ceasing project of inquiry and investigation. Point well taken. If puzzle connotes for you something trivial to be put away on the shelf once we're done fooling around with it, then please ditch the term for a better one. Julian, for her part, doesn't see any of the revelations she receives as providing anything she can rest in, but rather, she says at one point, 
as giving me some teaching like the beginning of an ABC through which I may have some understanding of our Lord's purpose. And here I'll offer up as a final example in closing the other 14th century mystic I mentioned, Hattowich of Brabant, who records an absolutely epic vision in which she and Augustine appear as eagles whirling in an abyss of God's omnipotence until they're swallowed up together by a phoenix representing the unity in which the Trinity dwells, wherein both of them are lost. Wild stuff. But here's what fascinates me. As perfectly happy as she said it made her to be swallowed up in God alongside St. Augustine, she's not content with the idea. She sees, uh, she says, I wouldn't allow myself any satisfaction in the security that was given me in this union with St. Augustine. She sees Augustine as representing our hearts at rest, in repose. But, she writes, in striving after God, I have never experienced love in any sort of way as repose. On the contrary, I found love a heavy burden and disgrace. In particular, she says, the plight of persons who failed God and were strangers to him weighed heavily on me. And charity for others wounded me cruelly that he should let these souls be strangers to him and so deprived of all the good he himself is in love. This was such an intolerable burden to me in many an hour that I would gladly have purchased love for them by accepting that he should love them and hate me. And sometimes, too, I would willingly have turned away from him in love and would have loved them in spite of his wrath. That is radical. But it reminds me of the wish Paul expresses at one point to be cut off from Christ for the sake of his brethren. Can I follow Hadowich? in her outburst of radical solidarity with sinners and refusal to rest until Christ really is all in all? I don't know. I'm going to keep puzzling about it. Amen. <laughs>